Welcome to my super type A attempt at being Zen, the podcast. My name is Risha York, and I will be your host. If you are overworked, overtired, overstretched, overwhelmed, just over it, you are in the right place. We like to say we are currently working towards Zen-ish. I'm thrilled that you've joined us. Let's see who will be supporting us on our path to Zen today. Welcome back to part two with Brittany Dagenet. I really hope you enjoyed part one. I certainly did. I can't wait to jump back in. Let's go. With mental health becoming more of a hot topic, is there something we're glossing over or ignoring? Yeah, so I think what we are ignoring is a lot of the language around mental health and for me specifically with therapy and what those expectations are. Um, I see a lot of people lately, I've noticed a trend because we talk about going to therapy and feeling better and all that. Um, Often people come to therapy as a very defensive thing, like therapy will help me achieve perfection, right? um, Will help me have better control over things. Um, And oftentimes that can be quite a disconnect in people coming to therapy, basically just to learn how to do their defenses even better. Um, And it can be really uncomfortable when as therapists, we're like, oh, like that's not really in line with how we view um, like what emotional health looks like. And yeah, that can be, that can be hard. And like you said, there's that intellectual um, and intellectualizing, like, tell me what to do. Yeah. Tell me this. And it's like, we're actually going to move to a feeling space. And it's like, but I don't want that. I just want to know the things. I want to know the steps to make those feelings go away. I want to. And it is very much like um, this idea that if, if people go to therapy, you know, they won't experience difficult emotions anymore because they will be so good at regulating from them that they'll just completely disappear. Which is so unreasonable. It is. But again, on an intellectual level, most of my clients know that. On an emotional right. level, however, most of them have the wish. Sure. Everything will bad will go away. Sure. It's understandable. It's so human, right? Like we want to avoid the painful stuff, of course. Like that's yeah. that's just part of who we are. Um, but I think that 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 almost like misalignment of therapist goals versus what clients often come to us with. Um yeah whether it's their overtly stated goals or their unconscious goals, I think can be harder for people to commit to therapy or commit to the work that's needed. Right. Um, 
And then the other piece is even just a lot of the conversations around mental health, like even just the word mental and health position it immediately within this medical model, which really, again, plays into that intellectualizing. Yeah. What can you prescribe me? How can you fix this problem I have? It is about that fixing. It's about those, like that power dynamic of tell me what to do, of that dynamic of there's a right and wrong answer. Um, There's a cure. Yeah. Like there's no cure for sadness. It's just a part of the human experience. Yeah. And that's it. It's funny. We've been, I like how you say, you know, there's the ideal, which is never achievable, but it doesn't mean we can't work it towards that direction. And that I feel like sums up my entire journey to Zen. Yeah. I feel like I'm not going to be enlightened at any point. I don't see myself reaching nirvana in this lifetime in this lifetime maybe in the next maybe <laughs> i've learned enough in this one that maybe in the next i'll i'll get that joy but in this lifetime i feel like the important part is working towards it yeah and just i i really liked um and i would almost pause on that phrasing cuz working towards it is still that very like it is that's an energy versus oriented towards it versus sorry working towards something versus being oriented towards something I like that yeah oriented towards it is much kinder and also I also feel like with heavy-handed forgiveness for self definitely right because I think this is where we get in in that expectation space yes yeah if you don't have forgiveness for self or more self love, like my new poster in the background here, um, <laughs> if, if you don't have that, if we can't practice that, then I feel like that frustration meter, it, it goes higher and higher and higher and we boil over. Yeah. Well, even that's that sense of conditional versus unconditional worth. When we feel that there are conditions to our value as people, then it is a constant striving to meet those conditions. There's just no escape from it as long as we have conditions on ourselves. Can you break that down a little bit for the people listening? So what would that sound like or look like conditional value? It often shows up in people's relationships, this sense of anxiety when they're not behaving a certain way, a sense of rigidness in how they want to present themselves to the world, to people, um, and a deep distress when things are not, they're not able to manage other people's emotions or perceptions of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so it is often enacted very behaviorally and with just that like high levels of distress um, in different interpersonal situations and also lack of trust in themselves. So a lot of worry and rumination over their behavior because they don't trust themselves to, because it's exhausting, right? Right. Strive to meet conditions. Um, And again, it's, you know, to a certain extent, we need to care what other people think of us like we are social beings that is normal yeah 
but it is like the amount of distress that's involved is usually indicative of that conditional worth. And it often comes from a place of inconsistent relationships or people putting those growing up with conditions like, well, you need to be this way um, in order to have like affection or friendship or belonging. Like, yeah, there's a sense that who they are can or cannot be enough depending. Right. So how do we reinforce how do we reinforce for our partners, for our children, for these people in our lives who may be feeling this way? How do we reinforce that our love is unconditional? I think communication is a big one, but I think a lot of us unconsciously withdraw affection when we are, or connection when we're upset or angry. Like we react to negative emotions by withdrawing. Yes. sit with people in this space of like I'm so angry with you and I can still sit here with you and care for you is something that not a lot of people grew up with or have experienced in relationships most of the time it's like I'm angry and like I just get away from me I can't deal with you right now I can't and therefore becomes threatening yeah it means disconnection and for someone who's super type a that's their biggest stressor yeah. is losing their people. Yeah. Right. So that would trigger a whole bunch of other feelings too. Yeah. And I would argue really it's everyone's biggest stressor. Like aloneness is probably the most like to the core anxiety inducing thing. Like just right. absolute aloneness is yeah. just terror. And so we all need community connection. Yeah, Yeah. it is. We're hard, hardwired for it. And so, yeah, that sense of like, I need to be very careful about what I do or else people will disconnect from me. Yeah. Is so, it shows up in so many ways. Yeah. Well, That's so interesting. I feel like I was really spoiled because I was raised by a therapist. And so, (laughs) you know, she would be like, I'm so angry at you. Do you want a cup of tea? (laughs) (laughs) It's really good at like showing that like I could, I'm livid right now, but that doesn't mean that I'm not here. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really hard thing to do. I, I struggle with it. I mean, I grew up with it and I struggle with it. Yeah. Right. So I have moments where I'm like, I just need some space at the moment. I need to walk away from this, but I always come back. Sometimes that space gives me a minute to parse my feelings yeah. and think about why I was triggered or whatever, and then come back. And actually I've taken lately to when I'm angry and frustrated, saying how I feel, but also being like, this is not your fault. Yeah. <laughs> I am frustrated and angry about this, but you've done nothing wrong. And and this is not your fault. And I say it in kind of an angry way, but I just want them to hear that part because I know that it's me. Yeah. Right? So I want them to understand... Like, there's no lack of love here and I'm not 
disowning you or shipping you off to military school yet, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I have these moments in my head where I'm like, oh my God, come on. I walk away and then I come back. Look at, there's always a place for you in this house. There's always a place for you in my heart. There's always a place for you. Always, 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 no matter how angry I get. That's a hard conversation for people to have. Yeah. Right. And with little people, I think we assume too, because I think that's a huge fear for children is being abandoned, right? Being, Mm -hmm. and we, I think we mistakenly assume that they can't understand those feelings when we say them out loud. And I, I just really want them to understand how I feel and how it doesn't actually affect how I feel about them. Yeah. Right. But how many people, how, how do we have that conversation? How do we get into the habit of having those conversations with our children, with our partners, with our friends? Yeah. I'm mad at you right now, but it doesn't mean I don't love you. I'm just really mad. (laughs) Yeah. Super, super hard to do. Right. Um, so in this world of super type A controlling behavior, what other obstacles do you see come up when we are, I'm going to say stuck in behaviors that aren't serving us? As much as we can recognize that these behaviors aren't serving us, there's an element of them that's self-protective and therefore there's a part of us that doesn't want to change. And people can swear up and down, like, I want to change this, I want to change that, but there's always a part, if you're doing it, there's a part of you that's not going to want to change because it serves a purpose for you. Um, And because, because, Um, people who tend to identify with that type A label tend to be a little more critical of themselves. It can be really hard for them to move from that like self-judgment to acceptance. Like, okay, well, yeah, this isn't really, some of these behaviors are a little out of control. They're not really serving me right now, but you know, I, I can appreciate they're trying to do for me. Yeah. It can be really hard to shift into that space instead of staying in the, but I just need to fix it. I just need to. And then it becomes this constant push pull between I need to fix myself and it is wildly unsafe to fix myself. And then it becomes caught in this like internal conflict that is just uncomfortable and unproductive and really challenging to navigate out of. Yeah. So then what are we, to use your terminology, orienting towards in those situations? Safety. Safety. Yeah. So is there ways for us to find safety in this space that is more graceful to ourselves? There is. Um, It's. I mean, that's what, what we do in therapy is try to incrementally build up that sense of safety in being less judgmental of self and being more accepting in feeling confident enough to try something new, um, which might look like letting things be a little chaotic 
um, building that trust in self and building yeah. a sense of unconditional worth. And it's very incremental. It's pretty subtle and it's very, yeah, it's definitely baby steps. And again, that can be really challenging because it's like, well, let's where are my this. results? Right. Yeah. I want the gold star. Tell me I did it right. Exactly. Um, so in a lot of ways, a relational style of therapy can be so, so, so beneficial for shifting some of these patterns, but can also like be everything that type A people hate about like therapy. It's like, wait, I have to be slow. Progress is intangible. And I have to be in my emotional space and <laughs> I have to confront all these things that are very uncomfortable. Like it yeah. is, it's so hard. It is, it so, is hard. so hard. It's funny. Um, you and I have a mutual friend actually, um, Olivia Neal, who does fiber arts and mm -hmm. she had done a, a needle point piece that says what's the rush and the second she posted on her Instagram I'm like I need I need that I need that I need that reminder every single day <laughs> so I bought it from her and I put it by my front door in the front hall amazing because for me that's the thing I'm always my husband and I it's like he's accusing me constantly of always being in a rush I'm accusing him constantly of having zero sense of uh, urgency ever and so between the two of us, it's like this funny little dance where everything ends up happening exactly the way it should and probably when it should. But I would probably be 30 minutes early for everything if I had my way. And he would probably be 10 minutes late for everything if he had his. So between the two of us, we tend to come into a nice place with like 10 minutes early. Uh, <laughs> but I'm always in a rush. And I don't know where that came from. I think probably from my upbringing. Um, cause my mother was that way, always in a rush, always trying to get somewhere, always had things on her list. Like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. In fact, I think I heard that exact phrase. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go about 30 times a week. Right. <laughs> so it's that sense of urgency that I think I was I don't know if I was born with it or it's just been like instilled in me through my upbringing, but now I'm actively working against it all the time to try and slow down, to try and take a beat, to be more mindful, to pause, to think before I react, to, right? Because <laughs> when you operate at that pace, you have less control over your reactions you're already stressing yourself out like you're already escalating your distress so yeah the capacity is going to be inherently reduced yeah and you know for us I mean we've gone through a lot in the last year it's been a lot of grief so you're already carrying that mm -hmm. right which I feel like I kind of liken it to like my wick got shorter mm -hmm. And then you have like two really young kids and then the wick is shorter. And then you have like all these uncontrollables. Yeah. Right. Things that you can't control and those stresses build up. And then 
you start to become more rigid in your controllables as a result to try and find some security, to try and find some balance. But the truth is it actually ends up causing me more stress. Yeah. So, you know, then I have these moments where I'm like, I'm just going to lean really heavily into my orange and blue and be like, whatever. <laughs> Let's just live in a hovel of crumbs and crap all over the house. And we'll just see how that works. And, and I maybe make it a day or two. And then I start to feel overwhelmed by the mess, the disorganization, the, right? Because there's something to be said, I feel like, for organization on the outside sometimes makes me feel organized on the inside, right? So walking that line is such a challenge. Yeah. What hills do you die on? Such a challenge. <laughs> right? How do we find our way? <clears throat> So, you know, in, in my work, I tend to say like, what are the real priorities? What are the real things that stem from the things that we value the most? Yeah. Values is an awesome, like a way to, again, to orient. Um, and I think too, like even on, which is very, an intellectual, um, side to it but even when we're starting to escalate our own internal distress over things checking in like what emotion are we trying to like escape from here that's a great one and there's usually something yeah you hear that gold there's your step one check in (laughs) what emotion are you trying to escape from here yeah that's a good one And oftentimes like in therapy, this shows up and it can be really subtle, but like people are often like running away from instead of growing towards things. Mm -hmm. I would say to tie back to that expectations, those expectations are running away from what happens in that space of more chill expectations. Right. Versus like, growing towards something is very like there's no distress involved right there's no urgency there's no stress it's just based on your internal motivation to like do something or experience something right and it's such a like subtle distinction but it it tends to it is like an underlying motivation that's good to check in on I agree it's it's funny. It, it tends to be a big part of the conversations I have with my clients too. There's a theme in the self-help world where we only want to focus on the positive and it's that toxic positivity coaching stuff, which, I mean, you can label it that way if you want, but I think what it actually is, is what you're talking about, which is ignoring the fears, ignoring what you're running away from completely. And what I actually found in reality is that you know, most self-help literature is built around this one book, or mo- I should rephrase that as most popular psychology self-help literature is built around this one book that was written in the 30s. And frankly, it didn't age well, right? And they've done a great job of modernizing the conversation around what the author was trying to say, but what they left out was an entire chapter that he had at the end around fears, 
and they're not talking about it it's not part i I'm sh- there are people out there talking about fears don't get me wrong i'm not saying all people out there in the industry aren't discussing it but people who are making a lot of money off of these self-help books being like read this it's going to change your life they're ignoring that entire chunk around fear yeah they're ignoring that entire uncomfortable feeling yeah where it's like sometimes we have to name this monster what is it you're afraid of and when you name that monster it becomes a lot less scary yeah right and we become a lot more self-aware around it Mm -hmm. and it's a piece that in my work I focus on because I want to make sure that that doesn't that's not your linchpin that's not the part that takes you down right? You live with it, just like grief, just like grief, right? We live with it, alongside it, instead of eliminating it. Yeah. Right? And grief is often really interwoven with fear, because a lot of our fears stem from situations that have caused us grief that we don't want to acknowledge or process. And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So then, you know, in that vein, do you think that there is validity in talking about our faults? I hate the term normalizing. It makes me feel frustrated. Um, but I, I, I like the idea of normalizing conversations around what we're perceiving as faults as just being human. Yeah, I think there's, and I would, yeah, just talking about the human experience and the different emotional, like complex emotional reactions that we have to things. And to go with this, like so much is oriented towards avoiding failure or like you said, faults. And there's not a lot of stuff about repairing after failure. So in like relational terms, we talk about rupture and repair and everyone is so focused on avoiding rupture that they never build the skills to repair or they never learn that the repair can be wonderful and that's where you grow and that's where like deeper connection is built. Yeah, in the taking accountability and in the apologizing and in the... Yeah, and in the safety of being able to do that, of like make mistakes and I can say I'm sorry and I know how to navigate that. And I, or I know how to feel hurt and let someone know that I've been hurt yeah. and that's okay. I can like trust that interaction. And most of what we perceive as faults are just think liabilities for these disconnections. And so they're no longer faults when we're not really worried about them causing us rupture or harm, or, you know, we can make mistakes because whatever. Like, well, and failure is our biggest teacher, right? So when we misstep, when we hurt someone's feelings, when we 
act in a way where there are repercussions. We remember that. That becomes an emotional moment that is imprinted on you. Yeah. Right? And I think you're right. That follow-up piece of now taking accountability or apologizing. People are not well-practiced in this. Mm. (laughs) And not even in the practice of it, but it's so uncomfortable for people or so distressing because it feels like it invalidates their core. Like they couldn't possibly make a mistake because it means then that like it just, there's so much meaning attached to that. Yeah. Of course I made a mistake. I'm like, I really want to own it. I want to repair from it. (laughs) That's probably going to happen again in the future. And that doesn't reflect on my value as a person. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think actually, you know, our gold personality types and certainly our green too, our inquiring greens, they're so focused on perfectionism. I feel like those two temperament types really struggle with that accountability piece because they knew better, they thought. Mm -hmm. And because our green personality types, their top value is knowledge and competence. So to have to admit that they were at some point incompetent or did not know is majorly triggering. Yeah. It makes them feel like their world is disintegrating. And for our goals, because they're organized and they're responsible to have to admit that they misstepped it, it's like physically painful. Right. And I, I want to under, I want people to understand and appreciate that that is, that's who you are as a person, but with practice, the more you take that accountability step, the more you admit that was me, I screwed up. Let's move forward. We don't have to live in mea culpa. You don't have to, you know, throw yourself on the fire and rake yourself over the coals that it doesn't have to be so painful. It can literally be like, I'm so sorry. That was a hundred percent me. Let's move forward. Yeah. Well, and then like you described that, like a sense of identifying as someone who is competent or knowledgeable or gets things right. Like that is conditional. Yeah. That is a conditional definition of self. And therefore if that's not met, then that is painful. Like that invalidates. Whereas having that more flexible definition, like, so that when there isn't that competent moment, it doesn't like feel like, wow, that invalidates who I am as a person. Like knowing that we're all going to screw up. Everybody is going to screw up. Nobody on this planet is infallible. And then also on the flip side of that, we have our our um, authentic blues who are happy to take accountability for everything, whether it's their problem or not. And they're just like me, that's me. I'm sorry. It's probably me. I screwed up. I, I blew it up. I messed it up. Just make it my fault. There's also some balance to be found there. Is it though? Are you the one who needs to take accountability here? Because sometimes you aren't. Mm-hmm. Right. Sometimes you got caught in the middle of a situation. And you're trying to smooth it over by taking the accountability. When it's it's someone else's responsibility to do that. And I think it's important that, you know, our high empaths understand that too. You know, when you're a high empath, it's not going to serve you to take responsibility for other people's problems. Yeah. Right. 
because that can take you down that same stressy road, right? <laughs> because, you know, for our high empaths, their biggest trigger is guilt and guilt 95% of the time is going to be self-induced, <laughs> right? Like we create guilt. It's the trap. It's the trap we build, yeah. which is scary for people, I think, and habit forming, yeah. right? So when we've created all this, so I guess my only other question at this point is you know, we've kind of gone through what it's like when we set these unrealistic expectations and we have this fear of not belonging and we're not really talking about the accountability piece and we're not really talking about um, the idea that it's okay to fail and that we are all human and that mistakes are going to be made and we have... I think generally too, in society, we have this unrealistic expectation for everyone right now because everyone's under a microscope, right? And God forbid you should have ever made a mistake. I can't imagine growing up with social media. I think back to being a teenager and I know I've done some dumb things. Oh gosh, yeah. Can you imagine that being documented for all time? Personally, no. No, definitely not. And that's got to add a whole other level of stress to these people who are holding themselves at this very high, high expectation. Yeah. Right. So how do we combat that, Brittany? How do we come at that and say, okay, what you see is maybe not what, what we're getting. What do you mean by that? I mean, like, the way that people are portrayed in social media, sometimes it's a mask and there's this mask of perfection. And sometimes we're digging into people's pasts to pull up something that they've done wrong or they have like flagrantly failed or, you know, misstepped in a pretty major way. And it's not that I don't want to hold anyone accountable, but is that still the person we're dealing with here today is my question, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think how someone interacts with social media and people who have big presences says a lot more about themselves, their values, their tolerance for um, people changing things like that or trigger points and things like that than it says necessarily about the person that we're criticizing. Okay. Um, yeah. Did that make sense? It does. Yeah. I, I think about it a lot, right? Cause I think, you know, when we hold ourselves to these super high standards, mm-hmm. when we're in this culture right now, where we're happy to be like, we're canceling you, you're done. Yeah. That's a huge trigger for people who are trying to do their best and they may have screwed up. Yeah. Right now we're going to make you not belong anymore. Yeah. Oh, you know, and it really reinforces. And so, yeah, I just, to me, it says more about the people who are canceling versus the person being canceled. And which is not to say that I'm endorsing any bad behavior or anything like that. I just, it's a very complex situation and from the distance of through a screen yeah. I don't know that we have all the information 
Um, and obviously there's big social themes to that, like people having voices that, you know, traditionally have not had a voice and exercising power that has been withheld, you know, for so long. And so it is very, it's not a healthy state. I think that we're in, but it's understandable. I agree. I agree. I feel like we're going to come out on the other side of it. Yeah. With more compassion, more understanding, more relatability. Yeah. At least that's my hope. <laughs> yeah. And a balanced and fair sense of accountability. Um, yeah. as, well as hopefully space for people to grow um, and learn from their mistakes. That would be, that would be great. But yeah, I think what I'm really hoping for and what I'm really hoping we can all continue to reinforce is that we are all human. Yeah. We will make mistakes. We need to be open to growing past our mistakes yes. in good faith. Which is so like, we can say that. And so many people know this intellectually, but like people listening, there's a good chance that most of them will have an emotional reaction. That's like, mm, but, mm, but And you know what? You're right. There are going to be some people who are not willing to learn from their mistakes. That is going to be truth. More like it'll feel uncomfortable, the idea that they have to be okay making mistakes. That too. (laughs) But I don't want to be okay making mistakes. I just want to get to a point where I don't make mistakes anymore. Where I'm perfect. (laughs) I am perfect and I am never at fault. (laughs) If only that world existed, friends. (laughs) Only that world existed. I would already live there. You know, the big joke around my house is mom's always right. And I'm like, well, most of the time, (laughs) no one's infallible, (laughs) but I have a pretty good batting record, you know, like one of those kind of moments. Well, I'm so grateful that you joined us here today, Brittany. I think you've given us a lot to think about for sure. And I love the approach, um, you know, orientation towards the ideal rather than making that the goal since truth be told, I mean, anybody who's ever been on a diet or tried to quit smoking or, you know, folks, we know it's a balance right? It's a challenge and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to misstep and that's okay. Give yourself some grace. Nobody's perfect. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's definitely complex and very emotional things. Um, and it is always so interesting to dive into them than to chat about them. I agree. I yeah. agree. So much to learn, so much to think about. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm grateful you've joined us here today. So thank you again for for coming on the show and hopefully we see you again and um, have yourself a wonderful day. And friends, thanks for joining us on the Super Type A Attempt at Being Zen podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and all that fun stuff for all the upcoming interviews and um, check Brittany out on the Instagrams. I believe you can do that. And what's your Instagram? It's awkward. AO psychotherapy. AO psychotherapy. So check Brittany Dagenet out there. 
We'll see you all very soon, or you'll hear me very soon, we hope. Thank you for listening. Like and subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit www.yorkmotivational.com for more information on my super type A attempt at being Zen, the coaching program, Lead Without Permission, or visit our contact page to reach out to Risha. Wishing you all continued balance and fulfillment on your road to Zen.